0: if you 're like me, and I think most of most of you are, and then I think even our culture to some degree there 's a bit of a sentimental sentimental spirit during Christmas time. People get a little bit more tender, a little bit more soft to the things of God, and uh, maybe more in a ceremonial way, people are sensitive to the storyline of Jesus. People have etched in their minds, whether from movies or Flannel graphs, or Sunday school time, or being raised in church—the scene of shepherds surrounding the, the baby laid in the feeding trough. That who is the one who is God, but also in flesh, in this vulnerable baby, as this vulnerable child and and genuinely human. You have the the teenage parents that are there. You have a stable, perhaps with animals we don't know or not, you know, whether they were there or not. Later on, the wise men come. But this scene is, it, it's at least in the background of our culture still. Even though we live in a liberalized society where God is being subtly erased and removed in in various ways around us, there's still the sense in which people... Um, as image bearers made in the image of God, have some thought in their mind about Jesus. Um, The songs and the hymns might be fewer and fewer in the department stores, but we probably will still, if we listen for it, hear Christmas hymns that have the theology of Jesus coming as Savior and King um, being sung. And, And we'll hear that in the background. People are making choices, I think, at at some level as to whether or not they'll let sin be the the static sound that crowds out the the true gospel story or not. But people do make that choice almost reflexively. And yet on the other hand, people in the the depth of their soul are longing for, for something to be resolved in their own life. Not just resolved nationally, not just resolved politically, not just resolved in Anchorage or whatever, but resolved in their own hearts, something that is missing inside, where they're wanting resolution, they're wanting peace in their own hearts. And they're asking themselves the question, isn't Jesus supposed to be the answer to that? And then some people will say, well, all right, I'm going to put a good face on, I'm going to pull out a good clean, you know, set of clothes, and I'm going to come to a Christmas Eve church service, or I'm going to come to Sunday, the Sunday before Christmas this year, and I'm going to show up. It's the Christmas and Easter move where you you kind of move into church, and church, by gathering and showing up, somehow I will fix my problem, and I'll, I'll do right, and what I'm calling that actually is the Christmas spell of legalism. It's a Christmas legalism. It's the idea that I can show up or do something to try to get me right with God or make things right. And that's a real issue. I know that this might sound like a cookies on the bottom shelf, sort of simple message, but we need to be willing to understand that people come under the spell of legalism. It's our job's It is. It's our calling. It's our commission to go out and tell people about Jesus and to explain what people are hearing in the background at Target or Walmart or at the mall or whatever. We're we're supposed to tell people about the Lord Jesus because we are the missionaries. We're the ones here on earth to communicate the message of Christ that gives hope to people. And one of the number one barriers that people still have in their hearts is a religious barrier. Where people are trying to make themselves right with God through religion. And we have to remove that. We have to find a way to remove it. And I'm not trying to unnecessarily dog uh, the Roman Catholic Church. But I did look this up as I was approaching my text. I kind of looked at this week at... Um, what's called the Catholic Standard, which is a Catholic newspaper. It's been around for, um, 50 years. It's out of Washington, D.C. And there was an article called Making Time for Confession Before Christmas. And it kind of fashions this idea. Um, it, you know, it's not trying to, but it basically promotes this version of Christmas legalism by calling people to come during Christmas time to Catholic Mass. I'm not just trying to pick on our friends, the Catholics, but because um, there are other denominations and Christian Protestant denominations that call people to church in the same way to try to do something to get right with God. And that's wrong headed thinking. That's not gospel thinking. But listen to how this article puts it. In these few days before Christmas, there are plenty of last-minute preparations to be attending to, buying gifts, decorating the house, planning family gatherings. But during Advent, which is a holiday season, which continues until Christmas Eve, the church calls us to examine our lives and amend and correct those faults that separate us from God. One of the best and most effective ways we can draw closer to God is by confessing our sins. That's actually a true statement, right? We need to confess our sins as Christians, but what do they mean? It says it is through the sacrament of reconciliation that the church provides us with a means to which our relationship can be made right again with God. The sacrament, and that's what this is, a sacrament of reconciliation. It's where the church is organized and empowered, and I don't believe it is um, supposed to do this, but the Catholics believe that the church can confer grace, saving grace, and then also keeping grace. And it makes you right with God by a conference or a, a sacramental pronouncement, and then it keeps you right with God as you continue to go to confession, It says the sacrament of reconciliation that the church provides us um, as a means to make ourselves right. The sacrament is one one of healing because though through it we find absolution, which is the formal release from guilt and mercy and forgiveness. So it ends up saying as we frantically rack our brains thinking of the perfect Christmas gifts to buy our loved ones, there's a wonderful gift we can give ourselves this year, a closer relationship with God and his church. Now, listen to the appeal. Try to make time in these next few hectic days to go to confession. It is through this sacrament that we tell God we wish to atone for our sinful ways to draw closer to him and to gratefully receive the gift of his son born in a manger. Now, the sentiment is is nice, and it's kind, and there's compassion behind this. But There is something that that needs to be corrected in this that also needs to be corrected in Protestant churches as well, sadly speaking. It's the idea of trying to add an additional step, add some show up and then you're right with God moment or do something even within the church that makes you right with God. And that is all wrong. That corrupts confession. True confession. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confession there in 1 John chapter 1 is talking about the Christian life. We are constantly called, James 5 as well, to confess our sins to one another in, in friendship and in love to help each other. We're also called to relationally confess or homilageo, that's the Greek word, say the same thing that God already knows to be true that's going on in our life anyway. That's confession. Through Christ, our sympathetic high priest, according to Hebrews 4, he is our high priest. Jesus is God who gets us to God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is the high priest that we go through to get to God. Second member of the Trinity and Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are, we are approaching God. We have direct free access through the living Christ who is sympathetic with all of our weaknesses because Jesus grew up in this world. Into full adulthood and died as the sacrifice to become the mediator between God and man so we could get to him. That's access. Listen, Christmas is about having that access. Jesus born 2,000 years ago, Bethlehem, obscure town, raw, real, earthy, authentic, in the manger, there, shepherds, animals, maybe. You know, teenage parents all around, leaning in, access to God who is with us. Jesus is that one who makes God real to us. And we need to be those who carry the message of this authentic, authenticity to people. So if we invite people to Christmas Eve, we're inviting people not to a service, but to, to um, hear about Jesus. That's why. It's not just to come to a program. It's to come to a presentation of the living Christ, who you can present any time and should present any time, any month of the year, during any occasion, right? This is Christianity. What obscures it oftentimes is unnecessary steps of religion where we believe that the church somehow is the gatekeeper of grace. It isn't. Jesus is freely offering us the grace of the gospel. And so I, I, I use all that as a bridge into the text that we would naturally come to in the unfolding of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And so turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're looking at verses 17 through 20. And this is uh, originally I titled it breaking the spell of legalism, breaking the spell of legalism. Remember in Galatians 3, it's a Paul's rebuke. Who has bewitched you? You know, you were born again by grace, and now you're trying to be perfected through the flesh, right? Bewitching. It's the idea that who has twisted up the gospel? Who's twisted all, all this up where it becomes satanically unclear, where you're trying to, you know, building block, build your life in your own flesh and strength instead of saying, Lord, it's all by grace. It's all by grace. And so Jesus, in his preaching of this sermon, which perhaps was his first sermon preached um, here on earth, is saying, I want to break the spell of legalism in your life. And I'm calling it Christmas legalism. We want to break that spell, right? We want to enjoy this holiday season with with grace in our hearts, not, not with law. Not with the the abuse of the law, which the Pharisees were up to. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. The word Pharisee means separate. And they were the elite, right? And they were calling everyone to embrace the law of the Old Testament as a book of rules. They wanted to be the gatekeepers of grace and say, listen, if you just do it the right way, we're gonna add traditions, we're gonna add laws, and we're gonna make it so that you can really achieve righteousness righteousness just like us. And that was the gatekeeping of grace measure that was anti-God and it was satanic and it was against Christ, and Christ is breaking that. That spell. He's up on the mountainside, sitting down, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, to his disciples gathered in close, but to the onlookers who were also sitting gathered wide and far, who are the Pharisees, and he's confronting them, he's dismantling them, and he's wanting to shock the crowd out of their legalism. So if you're taking notes, here's the um, sort of outline header. Jesus breaks the spell of legalism by answering two questions. The first question is how Jesus relates to the law, or you can put it as a question. How does Jesus relate to the law? In verse 17, he's answering his critics. That's what he begins with. He's building a straw man here so that he can knock it down. He's answering their criticism of him. What was the criticism? It was that he was trying to destroy the law. Verse 17 he says, do not think that I have come to abolish, Where there is luo, destroy, suffocate, do away with the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, all of the law, all of the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of these scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, this is a, uh, a shocker. This is really a hard text to unpack even now, but especially then. It was something that would put the scribes and the Pharisees' legalists on edge and would would sort of make it nervous in the crowd. Well, the first question is, how does Jesus relate to the law? If he didn't come to abolish it, how does he relate to it. He's propping up an accusation here that's being leveled against him. He was being called a rebel. He was being called someone who was unclean, someone who was sabotaging, a saboteur of the, the law of, of the Old Testament. our 39 books of the Old Testament that make up the law, the Torah, the prophets, the major and minor prophets, all the poetic books. Obviously, Jesus was seen as unclean and someone who's a a false teacher leading us astray away from all that God had given the nation of Israel. Jesus was one who, according to Mark, was a friend of sinners. He called the tax gatherers, those who were the Jews who had been compromised under Roman rule and tyranny, who were tax collecting and, and extorting the Jewish people. And he ate also with not only those, those evil, you know, quote unquote IRS workers, I'm just kidding. Anyway, but uh, those, those um, who were defiled. Remember the harlot who came and washed Jesus' feet. And I mean, you, you have Jesus who is literally Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, it says he relaxed with sinners, he reclined with sinners. He was letting his guard down, letting him, uh, letting them come to him and talking with them and and speaking with them truth, and that was foreboding to uh, to Pharisees. And Jesus was a non credentialed teacher and rabbi. He was not known as someone who was part of the Pharisaical guild. Here he's making a sweeping statement, saying, "I didn't come to abolish." I didn't come to destroy or put away the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to plerao them, like do not be drunk with wine, be filled in the Holy Spirit. I came to fill out all the law. I came to explain the law. I came to fulfill every. Jot and tittle of it, because none of it is going to pass away. None of it. You think I'm trying to put away all of it. I'm not putting away any of it. I'm applying all of it. I'm showing you the meaning behind all of it. So in one sense, they're trying to just broad brush Jesus and say, you're trying to do away with something. And he's saying, no, I'm making the stakes even higher than you are Pharisees but not through legalism, not through legalism. That's the irony of all this. He raises the stakes because he makes it about faith, not works. He makes it about grace, not some kind of law-keeping, raw, slavish obedience. He's making a straw man so he can knock it down to make his point. It's an explanation. It requires faith to see the law in this way, and that's what he's doing. He's He's making his point. What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? What does it mean? Well, a lot of people will actually say that the law should be broken down into three different sections or three different um, kinds of the law. You have the moral law, which is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and all of that is filled out in the Pentateuch and other places with the moral code of obedience. And then secondly, the civil dimension of the law, where Israel is a true theocracy. It really was the one nation under God, right, in the world. And that theocracy is filled out with, with civil um, um, commands in terms of how we would relate to each other in that kind of community if you were an Israelite in that time. And then you had the ceremonial aspect of the law, which is all the sacrifices that were, that were delivered and given to atone for um, sins, and they were ways for people to seek forgiveness of God ceremonially, both in terms of a corporate day of atonement and then dynamic sacrifices that were regularly offered well Galatians 4 4 says that Jesus was born unto a woman and under the law so he was born under this law you remember Pigeons were were given even at at Jesus's um, when, at his birth when he was born. There was a ceremonial sacrifice that was given to dignify that Jesus was was born a Jew and and so from that point on and at all other points, Jesus fulfilled all of the law. He was he was perfect in all of his ways, fully human, feeling the the weaknesses of the world, and yet with the inability to sin. I mean, I I really believe Jesus being God, though there is the, the authenticity of him being human and making choices to resist real temptations that came externally, internally, you just need to know as God, he would always make the right decision. And that is how you balance and harmonize um, Jesus being perfect. He perfectly fulfilled everything. Even when John the Baptist came and was calling people out of ceremonialism, and he's saying, Come out into the wilderness and be baptized, Jesus shows up. And John the Baptist is saying, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus in Matthew chapter three, a few chapters earlier, says to says to John, um, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us, verse 15, to fulfill all righteousness. Same word, plurao. We're filling up. I'm showing the active obedience of Christ here where he's doing everything that he's supposed to do, following the Lord's will, following the law perfectly, following the law. And I would say it this way in terms of how he describes it's supposed to be followed in this sermon. And we're going to talk about all the issues of applying the law in terms of the law of Christ in the remainder of Matthew's um, chapter five, six, and seven chapters. And that is um, how, what Jesus did. Jesus was affirmed, the heavens open up. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was the fulfillment of the law morally in terms of civil requirements and also ceremonially. He's called the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the lamb who is the typological Or, or, or typological picture fulfillment of every sacrifice that was done in the Old Testament. This is Jesus. Hebrews 10 says that sacrifices were offered repeatedly like a, you know, like a, like a slaughterhouse. Blood would be spilling out of the temple to, to show the grotesque nature of sin. All of those sacrifices that were bathed in blood are pictures of the one true sacrifice. For all time, verse 12 of Hebrews 10, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he came and sat down at the right hand of God. He fulfilled the ceremonial law at the cross. The Bible teaches these things. But even though you can understand the law in terms of civil, ceremonial, and moral, as Pastor Nathan Schneider, I'm sure, would affirm as well, the law here, we're talking about the corpus of the law. We're talking about all of it together Jesus is the prophetic fulfillment of all of the law. Listen, once you understand Christ, once you understand who he is through the eyes of faith, you've embraced Christ, not just understanding notionally, but you understand him from the heart. You love Jesus. Then you read the Old Testament Testament differently. You see it differently. You understand it differently. It was always all about him. The, the Old Testament is not just the part of our scripture that's the, you know, like the previews before the movie, you know, the part that you can take or leave. It, it's, it's important to understand the whole of the redemptive story of grace. The Bible is about Jesus. Jesus is the key that unlocks the code of the Old Testament, You crack the Old Testament code by understanding Jesus. It was all about him and it was all about him from its inception. That's why it's here. It's what Jesus said of himself. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus that met with Jesus and Jesus said in Luke 24, 27, it says in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is the corpus of the Bible, of the Old Testament at this point. Moses and the prophets, all of it, major, minor prophets, every little bit is pointing to Christ either directly or indirectly. It's amazing. You have. Passages that we've gone through as we've been studying um, Matthew's Gospel, Micah 5 2, um, that is quoted and cited by the um, Magi who came, who were Put under scrutiny. Why are you here? Why are you searching for Christ? Where is Jesus the Messiah supposed to be born? Well, Matthew 2 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, here it is, the quote from Micah 5 in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah who will shepherd my people Israel. They were able to know where Jesus was going to be born because. Prophecy was literally being fulfilled in Jesus. And then the quote from Hosea chapter 11 that is, that is quoted in Matthew 2, verses 15, just a few verses later. Um, Hosea 11, 1. When Israel was a child, speaking of the nation of Israel, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, that is synced up in the New Testament to mean um, in verse fifteen of chapter two, that this is Jesus it says and remain there, this is you know Mary and Joseph took the child, they rose, they departed, went to Egypt, verse fourteen, and remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill same word fulfilling. you see that. Uh, Jesus was was taken to Egypt to protect him because Herod was putting that, that genocide out on the children who would be in the Bethlehem area and broader area to try to snuff out Christ. Jesus was taken down to Egypt, but it was to fulfill, it was to prove that this was all about Jesus. That out of Egypt I called my son. The son was Israel in the Old Testament, but it's applied forward to all mean Christ. That's the whole Bible, right? I mean, think about it. You have creation and, and, you know, let there be light, which that connects to 2 Corinthians 4. And the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is shown in our hearts. So creation light symbolizes saving light. It's amazing. You have the fall. You have sin where the world is under a curse and yet immediately in Genesis chapter 315 talks about how Satan is going to be crushed and the heel is going to be bitten. That's the proto-euengelion. It's the first statement of the gospel in Genesis. It was meant to be this way all along. There's prophecy in in the new testament talks about how it's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world it was all in god's mind so you have creation you have fall you have the flood you have the nations right that that are born and the nations that are under the promise of the abrahamic covenant that through christ all the families of the earth are going to be blessed abraham's faith which is the ephesians 2 faith we're saved by grace what through class through what faith and that not of ourselves it's a gift of god not of works let's say that any man should boast it all connects together you have the nations and then you have the nation of israel that is the apple of god's eye you have where the law is given the covenants are given where where truth is there where kings are born to picture the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords and yet those kings many of whom, except for a couple of them, went into false idolatry and sin and the power that's corrupting and people are worshiping falsehood. And so God judges the nation of Israel, puts them in exile, but then brings them back as a, a redemption moment, just like he did the Israelites that were under Egyptian rule and they were redeemed out of, out of a bondage. And Moses is this Christ figure who's leading them to the promised land. And all of Hebrews 11 points to the faith of the promised land, which is the picture of heaven. It all ties together. Jesus is born He 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 lives the perfect life, he dies as a sacrifice, he rises again, the church is born. It's the evangelistic post to the nations. It's what we're living out in redemptive history right now, where Jew and Gentile are brought together because the curse of sin is answered in the cross, and ultimately this will culminate in the millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign, and then the new heavens and the new earth and And you have Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22 that holds together as the storyline. And who is the the revelation of this storyline? It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the golden thread of the picture of grace from Genesis to Revelation that we have. Now, in the early church in um, AD 140, there was a Gnostic and his name was Marcion. And he tried to bifurcate this story between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And you know what? We say, well, Marcion was this Gnostic and weirdo, but the the church does it even today. People will Say, well, the God who, you know, ended up wiping out the world in a flood, that can't be the same God of grace that we worship today that we feel good about our lives in. This is not the God that we're coming to worship on, um, on December the 24th. No, it is. Jesus Christ, this little baby, this little baby in the manger will one day come back with a two-edged sword and wipe out and lay low all of his enemies. That's really gonna happen. And the world's gonna be burned up with fire. That's the same little baby Jesus that's pictured in the manger who comes as the lamb. He's also the lion, right? Amen? This is the God that we worship. And if you don't have all of God, you don't have God at all, right? The Old Testament, Hebrew, Hebrew, Um, books of the Bible portray the same God as the New Testament Christ that is portrayed in the Greek New Testament that is all translated in English for us. But... Marcion tried to wipe it out. He wiped out any prophetic fulfillment um, verses in the New Testament like we just read that are linked to the Old Testament. He said those aren't real. That's not it. We really just have this loving Jesus and you have the Apostle Paul who will keep his books in the New Testament canon that ultimately portray who God is and that's heresy. That's heresy. I was reading um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this, and he was all up in arms in, I think, the 70s about the, the um, trend for Bibles to be just slimlined down to New Testament Bibles. And he's saying, you've got to have your Old Testament there to have the full revelation of all of who God is and how it all ties together. Now, I have a New Testament like that, but I don't, you know, so I'm not saying it's that big a deal. But it is interesting to think about, you know. We don't want to miss. Um, all of God's word really don't reminds me of, um, my wife said, she said, you've told this joke before, but I'm going to just do it anyway. Um, the Australian Sunday school teacher. Okay. She's teaching Australia. She's got her five-year-old Sunday school class out there. And she says, you know, she wants to mix things up. She wants to get their attention. So she says, what's gray, what's gray and furry, dark leathery in the nose and goes up in trees and eats gum leaves. Children gave her a blank stare, not knowing what to do. Finally, a child nervously put up her hand and spoke up and said, Teacher, I know that the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a koala bear. <laughs> All right, I got more laughter this time. And last, that's good. I like it. Raise your hand if you've heard that but no, never mind. All right. So, but things open up. I want you to have not only free access to Christ and be out from under the spell of legalism, but free access to all of your Bibles. Maybe that's a secondary application here, but look back at Matthew 5. Matthew 5, Jesus goes on with this shock therapy, um, shocking people out of their legalism by saying in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, till it's all said and done, not one the iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. All of it. So Jesus is answering his critics, but he's also making his point. It all happens. It's all still real, and it's all still here for us. Until heaven and earth pass away, until the end of time, not one iota or Yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law. It's almost as if Jesus is ratcheting things up. If you view that statement through the eyes and ears of a legalist, you're getting more nervous. You're going, wait a minute. You know, I, I was obeying the law. If I'm a good Pharisee and if, if I'm the top Pharisee, I'm actually obeying all the extra laws that we've put in there as interpretations of the law. Remember in Luke chapter 18 where you have the scribe and the Pharisee and the, the Pharisee is going, I'm glad I'm not like him. You know, I don't do this. I don't do that. And I fast twice a week. Well, in the Old Testament law, I, one person put it, it was like twice a year that you would fast. Those were days that were called, I think it might've been once a semester, that you're called to fast. Well, he's going, I fast twice a week. I got this thing nailed. Well, Jesus is going, you don't have it nailed because we're talking down to the jot and tittle. We're talking down to what would be like the English serif, you know, the little pointing on a letter that, that distinguishes it that way. All of that is still holding true. All of that still applies. All of the Bible matters, right? All scripture is in what? Inspired by God and profitable for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God will be equipped for every good work. All of the Bible matters, not just part of the Bible, because it's all about Jesus. And you only see that through the eyes of faith. If you hear it through the ears of legalism, you're like, ugh, jot and tittle? What are you talking about? This is crazy. You have the, the iota, which is the smallest Hebrew letter, the yoda, in, or the yod in Hebrew. And there were 66,420 of them. There are that many in the Hebrew Bible. And I remember these in vocabulary quizzes. And I remember the little um, dots, the little t- the, the little tittle that, that actually would um, extend a T in the Hebrew language to an H. And if you got that wrong on the vocabulary quiz, you were marked wrong. So this is minutia that Jesus is talking about. But this is applied in terms of faith or the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophetically. That's why it all applies. That's why none of it is passing away because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was who who he was then. He was who he was when he was here. And then he is who he is today. And the word of God remains forever. Not, Not anything in the word of God is passing away. And so we need to understand it that way. So this is all speaking in terms of how Jesus relates to the law. Everything written in the Old Testament points to him, all of it. Where he's going in verse 19 is interesting because verse 19 speaks of the warning of whoever relaxes One of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is doing, ironically, is he's talking to the legalist saying, Oh, you think you've got the law nailed by ratcheting it up? Let's ratchet all the way up to the jot and the tittle of the law. But if you go that direction... If you're trying to get to heaven through the law of legalism, if you're trying to bind people up with guilt, the guilt of the law, you are least in the kingdom of God. And that's actually what he's calling here relaxing the law because the standard is much higher. Christ's righteousness is perfect holiness. You can't relax it down to do-gooding. Do-gooding is... Just, you know, like, it's ridiculous. There's, there's a ridiculousness when you think in terms of God's holiness and the standard of, of perfect holiness to get to heaven and trying to do that in our own strength, right? There are times in the morning when it's dark where you can't even find your socks to put on or your shoes around the house, and you think that you can keep the law at a standard or be religious enough to get yourself right with God. It's relaxing things instead of saying, I need to face holiness and find grace. The only way to find grace, again, is the beatitude attitudes. We're poor in spirit. We can't save ourselves. We have to release ourselves out of legalism and say, I need grace. That's what we're going to look at in point two on how to relate to the law. But we're going to have to do that next time because I've got too much more to say and I don't want to rush through it, but I think it's important. Be thinking about your neighbors. Be thinking about your friends. Be thinking about your own heart. Examine yourself with a passage like this and enjoy grace because we need to not fall into the bewitching spell of legalism. That's that's what it's all about, grace.